Support for KZSU comes from Modeler.com, a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com provides tools for architects, designers, and construction professionals to discover, discuss, and specify products for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU Stanford University's FM radio station broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay. For our guests today, please welcome Steve Blank, a Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur and academician, love that word, based in Pescadero, California. Steve's also recognized for developing the customer development method that launched the Lean Startup Movement, a methodology which recognized that startups are not smaller versions of larger companies, but require their own set of processes and tools to be successful. For more information, you can visit steveblank.com. That's steveblank.com. Hello, Steve. We're excited and honored to have you on the uh, Modern Architect today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, Steve, you know, I have to tell you, you know, in, in researching um, in researching you and going back and forth with the emails I had, oh, Steve's done this, oh, great. Oh, Steve's done this, that's great. Okay. I literally at some point just threw the paper on the floor because I said there's so many facets to, to what Steve's done. I'm not sure where to begin or how to begin. So I thought, well, let's start what kind of your early inspirations were. Well, thanks, Tom, though I, I, I should tell your listeners that I am also the least likely person to be on an architecture show because I'm, I'm not an architect and, and know nothing about it other than having been a customer uh, before. But, That's why you're here, because we think there there's definitely going to be some, uh, some segue and, and some uh, connection, and I think our listeners are going to find that out. So, But I do know about innovation and entrepreneurship, and that's yeah. what I've been doing my whole life. I, I guess, uh, you know, my career started in a very non-traditional way is uh, I spent four years in the Air Force during Vietnam and uh, uh, learned about uh, agility and resilience uh, uh, in Southeast Asia during the war. And uh, Mm -hmm. it it turned out that actually uh, learning how to operate in chaos and uncertainty with limited resources was probably the world's best training ground for Silicon Valley. And and when I got uh, got out of the military, went back to school in Ann Arbor, and then ended up in Silicon Valley in the 1970s, which was the beginning of the boom times yeah. of uh, when we were still a defense in Silicon Valley. And I did eight startups in 21 years, uh, box score. Uh, um, oh, eight in 20? Wow. Box score, uh, four IPOs. Wow. Uh, but more importantly for what I learned, two craters so deep they have their own iridium layer. Oh. Um, and in fact, one of them, um, I was on the cover of Wired magazine and then – 90 days later, uh, realized I was going out of business and lost $35 million. And then had to call my mother, who was an immigrant, and tell her 
mom, I lost $35 million. <laughs> and, you know, since English was not her first language, she had to pause and translate in her head and then logically said, really? Well, where'd you put it? <laughs> did she really? And I said, no, 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 I didn't misplace it. I lost it. And then she said, oh, my God, the country we came from is gone. And then she said, and her name is blank. We can't even change it. And the reason I tell the story was not that I lost a lot of money, but yeah. actually um, the two investors who um, lost the money gave me another $12 million to do it again. And the the reason why oh. Silicon Valley is an entrepreneurial cluster is uh, that was a, a both a test of, of their faith, but also a test that we have a, a special word for failed entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. You know what it is? What is the word? Experienced. <laughs> and, and so I returned. I, a, I returned a billion dollars each to the two investors. Um, is that and, right? From and, losing thirty-five to getting another twelve, is yeah. it? Yeah. And, and so then you turned it into a billion dollars each for the two investors. Right. And then I retired. Oh. Um, <laughs> I went home and watched my kids grow up. But also. <laughs> This is the segue into innovation entrepreneurship. I started thinking about the nature of innovation and how it's different from mm -hmm. what large established companies did and realized we really didn't have any methodology or even a way to describe the differences. It wasn't that people weren't thinking about innovation entrepreneurship. It's just that in the 20th century, particularly in entrepreneurial clusters, that is centers of, of innovation like Silicon Valley and Boston and others, we treated startups like they were smaller versions of large companies. Mm -hmm. That is, investors told new ventures to do everything a large company did. They write a five-year plan. We wanted a business plan from you that had a five-year forecast. Okay. They hired sales, marketing, engineering, biz dev on day one. We want you to do the same. Um, they went through a logical process of building products, what's called alpha test, beta test, first customer ship. We want you to do the same never understanding that large companies were executing what we now call a known business model. In a large company, you're large because you know customers, you know what features or products or services those customers want, you know about pricing, you know about competitors, you know about your environment, you know about resources you need. Mm -hmm. and, and so really in a large company, you could write a plan because there are a series of knowns. But what we never understood is while large companies were executing known business models, Startups were searching for business models, but we had 100 years of building tools for execution. Remember, the word MBA actually stands for Masters of Business Administration. Oh, okay. Administration. Administration, So yes. we had tools to build nice. leaders of existing companies and, and methods to do that and, and educational process to do that. We had no masters of business startups, um, and there were no tools. So the insight I had was we needed a whole set of tools that didn't – we didn't even have the language to describe the difference. And so at the turn of the century, I wrote a book which kind of kicked off what's now called the Lean Startup Movement, which is now way past startups. It's done by companies and government agencies and whole countries to, to articulate the difference between what large companies do and what innovation looks like, which is yeah. very different. And ironically, and I'll jump to part of the chase, which is applicable to, to your listeners, is that now every large company is being disrupted. They need to act like innovators. Again. Yeah. I'm curious about the, 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 the word disruptor. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of a buzzword now. But um, it's uh, – It means someone's coming to yeah. kick your ass, take your wife, children, and family, and burn your house down. Okay. <laughs> okay. With that intent <laughs> and actions. Yes. Okay. So – with that, how much of uh, you go back to an MBA is how much of it is learned, and how much is it just uh, in 
in, intrinsic in someone? Yeah, so that's a great question. Is that can innovation and entrepreneurship be taught, or is it kind of are, are you born with this? And and I think the and I struggled with this for years. And my best friend, John Rubenstein, who used to run the uh, iPhone and iPod division at Apple, so when I told him I was teaching entrepreneurship, laughed hysterically. He said, Steve, you were a born entrepreneur. You can't teach this stuff. And I thought about it because I was teaching yeah. this stuff. And I realized that the mistake entrepreneurial education had been making, this is eventually back to your question, is we were thinking about teaching entrepreneurship like teaching accounting or teaching drawing. It's not a it's not a task. Okay. It's actually closer to any other profession. It's like art. So being a founder is like being an artist. You, okay. you see something that no one else sees. You hear something that no one else hears. If you're a composer, or if you're a sculptor, you, you know the classic. How did Michelangelo do the Pieta? His line was, "I just removed the stone around it." Yeah, that's an interesting. So part. if yeah. you think about it, so are artists born? Or do we apprentice them? And the yeah. answer is yes to both. That is, there are some people who have an innate passion to okay. create something. Architects, right? Okay. When architecture is a calling, not a job, right? what you want to do is train them on the basic skills to accelerate their, their ability to kind of bring their calling to life. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is the same way, at least in my mind. There are born entrepreneurs. We educate them to make them better at what they want to do. But but I believe you can't divide the class in half and say those of you on the left are going to be painters and sculptors and architects and those of you on the right are going to work in the assembly line. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And, and I think architecture, entrepreneurship, artists, you're called. They're not jobs. They're callings. And if you're not called to that profession, no amount of training can make you great. can make you competent, but it can't make you great. Terrific, terrific uh, explanation for and, that. And by the way, one last piece is in the 19th century, uh, we understood that there was value, and I'll go back to art, in teaching art appreciation to the other half of the world who can't be artists, but in fact can appreciate art and also helps them identify who might have that calling. So we now teach art appreciation in, in the earliest possible grades. One is to make you appreciate music and Yeah, and music painting, especially, yeah. But it also makes you appreciate, well, wait a minute. You mean that's a career I could have? Well, I've, I've, have, I've felt this inside. I think we're going to find the same for entrepreneurship appreciation. That is, when we start pushing this down to the earliest possible grade, not how to do a lemonade stand, but actually how to create something out of nothing. Yeah. Again, much like art, people are going to say, "Really, I I, I could do that?" Yeah. yeah. So so you've got there's a, a a high level of discovery in this, and I, I'm more uh, I, I believe more in discovery than even creating. And uh, uh, I, we can talk a little bit about that in, in a few minutes. But what that entrepreneurship appreciation. You you've teach class here at Stanford and, and, and elsewhere. What what? How do you do that? How do you teach that sort of appreciation? So one one of the one of the things we do is uh, we have a capstone or kind of a high level class at Stanford called the Lean Launchpad, which puts together all the pieces of of what we now know as the Lean Startup and actually build a startup. And, and it does a couple of things. Lean has three pieces. One, it says on day one, even though you're a visionary. Actually, uh, on day one, a startup is a faith-based organization because all you have is a, is a religious is. belief yeah. about your vision yeah. and passion. 
And the mistake we used to make is thinking that's all that was required. Um, the insight I had, which is not very hard, is it's, there are no facts inside the building, so get the heck outside. That is, on day one, why don't you take your vision and see if anybody else shares it? meaning outside your building with your co-founders. And it used to be we'd fight with each other about what features or what things we were building or what services we were offering. Instead, why don't we just go out and talk to those potential customers early on? And the part about this lean methodology is we formalized that out of the building process called customer development, which is the part I invented. And then there was someone else named Alexander Osterwalder who came out with a concept called the business model said, listen, what you're actually testing outside the building is a set of hypotheses, which is a fancy word I use at Stanford because the students pay a lot of money, but outside, it just means you're effing guessing. Um, so, so what hypotheses are we guessing about? And so what we're guessing about is who are the customers? And inside a corporation, we could have multiple customers. What products or services do those customers want? Well, I think they're going to want X. Well, why don't we test that? What's our distribution channel? How much should we charge? How are we going to get them, keep them, and grow them? What assets and resources do we need? What activities did we need to become expert at, and what are our costs? So those are the major hypotheses about a building. Uh, excuse me, about a business. We're going to get out of the building, test them with a formal process, and then the third piece of lean, and that's all it is, is three components, is we're going to build what we call minimum viable products. Um, it, which could be a wireframe, a PowerPoint slide, an Excel spreadsheet, a cardboard mock-up, testing our hypotheses about, well, if we offered you this service, or if we offered you this, or if we, would you pay for this, or what do you think, without building the entire final product or service, and see if we could get people to both validate it and then validate it by writing you a check. Um, and so those three components, articulating our hypotheses, testing them outside the building, and then building iterative and incremental prototypes of the final product called minimum viable products is what we call the lean process. Okay. The, there's a couple of interesting things. Is One is it allows us to be wrong early without creating a crisis. Say that again. It allows us to be wrong early without okay. creating a crisis. Instead of waiting to like a year after we've set up our company and you know yeah. raised all the money and finally built product or services X or Y and then discovered no one wants it, we could discover that like within the first couple of weeks or months. Now, it doesn't feel good, but it allows us to make changes inexpensively um, and allows us to do something we call the pivot. And a pivot is a substantive change in one or more of your hypotheses about your business. Instead of, again, spending years or months mm -hmm. or hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions making a fundamentally flawed uh, assumption, gee, because it was in the plan, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. well, well, gee, the plan was just a set of pieces of paper. And this is what's different, again, about a startup versus a large company. In a large company, you could write a plan because you actually have some facts about your existing customers, people who are buying and paying, et cetera. In a startup, putting those same words on a piece of paper don't make them any realer. Yeah. It actually is a false trap. It, it just makes you believe you deeply understand the customer problem and solution. In fact, when you start a new company, that's probably the biggest mistake founders make is deeply assuming you understand the customer's problem. And therefore, all you need to do is build and offer the solution to that problem. Okay. Most of the time, you're wrong. 
Um, even if you were that customer, you know, six months ago, you don't quite know until you get out of the building and test it. And so the whole methodology is about finding out early rather than later. Yeah. Now, you, you, you said you had three components. You said it's rather simple. You're saying it's rather simple. But those three components can be loaded. I liken it to a, a, have you seen books at the bookstore? It'll say like a, a five ways to uh, get the job or, or uh, 10 ways to in, uh, invest and, and, and make, uh, make millions. And, 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 and the books are like two, 300 pages long. <laughs> so those three components that you're talking about, as simple and as, as, um, as accurate as they are, how much of it, how, how deep is, are those three? Well, they could be as deep as you want, but the, 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 the problem in implementing them is human nature, and it's the nature of founders. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, again, on day Go into one, that, the human nature. So yeah. in, in day one, as I said, a, a startup is a faith-based organization, meaning you have to be irrational to, to want to start <laughs> something new. I mean, really, if you consider it, why wouldn't you take a, a full-time job in an existing ar- architectural firm or in a, with a contractor and, you know, get a check from nine to five? So, so you have to truly believe in w- what your vision is. And, and and no one wants to hear that their baby is ugly, uh, so, so you go out <laughs> and you know, analogy. and people go, well, no, that's a very horrible idea. And you then you then you and if you're the founder, the first couple of times you hear that, you go, they just don't know what they're talking about. And and then finally you realize they're calling your your baby ugly, and so. Okay, well, you check to make sure you've been showing them the right end of the baby, so you turn it upside down, and and then it's still ugly. And then smoke starts coming out of your ears because cognitive dissonance sets in. But if you're the founder, you could do something that no one else can. You can actually assimilate that feedback and make substantive changes. Okay. All right. With the baby? or Well, you could get someone else's baby, or you could come up with a new baby. I mean, let's not take it that far. But the point is, if you're running this process and you're open to hearing that maybe some of your fundamental assumptions are incorrect, you could take that feedback and immediately start saying, well, maybe I'm talking to the wrong customers. Or maybe the features, I thought these are the right customers, but I'm hearing that instead of features 1 through 12, they actually wanted feature 5 or service 9 or whatever, yeah. and maybe put them in this order. Wow. So we'll, 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 touch, we'll touch back on that in a minute. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Loop is a radio show featuring electronic music, ranging from house to techno to downtempo, and everything that's good in the underground. Each week, the show features releases, exclusive mixes, top picks, interviews, and live guest DJs from around the world. That's The Loop with Drew Deep. On Monday mornings at 10 a.m., and now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Steve Blank, a serial entrepreneur and academician based in Pescadero, California. For more information, please visit... SteveBlank.com. That's Steve, B-L-A-N-K.com. Steve, uh, you're talking about the, the, the personality. You've got the, 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 the ugly, someone telling you your baby's ugly and how you can adjust to that. Elaborate a little bit more on that. Like, how do, how do you adjust to that? And, and, and you take that sort of feedback from people. Um, obviously, you have to be almost egoless 
to to listen to that? Or do you think you have to well, have those you, exp experience, as you yeah. said? You've had enough experience to know if someone says your baby's ugly. You're like, okay, yeah, I do. What, what can I do to make him not so ugly? So if you're egoless, <laughs> the odds are you're not a founder. Okay. Uh, if, oh, oh, okay. That's it. very interesting. Um, yeah. You know, a startup is an act of aggression. Um, Love it. That's um, an act of aggression. I, I, you know, at, at okay. least in the world I come from... Um, Anytime you're doing something pretty radical, you, almost everybody's a naysayer. You know, family, friends, whatever. <laughs> and, and you have to believe in what you're doing. Again, I'll go back to art. Okay. Um, you know, I'm sure when people saw Starry Night, you know, they, they didn't say great painting. They probably said, hey, can you can you add some more pink? Um, um, or uh, again, when people saw that 12-foot block of marble that Michelangelo had in the studio, they didn't say it's the most beautiful sculpture in the world. Yeah. Um, but they all had their vision of, of what they wanted to accomplish. So, you know, number one is startups tend to start with people with strong opinions. And that's why lean is hard, not because the methodology is complicated to understand. As I said, if you could explain it in about two minutes. It's the implementation is difficult because human beings um, want to believe mm -hmm. what their original assumptions are. And, and so this methodology just gathers data as quickly as humanly possible that allows smart founders to start processing that real information. Um, and that's what makes it kind of efficient. It, 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 when practiced well across a portfolio of, of innovations, allows you know venture capitalists and investors to increase their IRR, that is the mm -hmm. return across a portfolio, or allows a large company to kind of increase the number of hits on, on new ideas across the innovation pipeline. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible to have a? You've heard the phrase. We have heard the phrase. Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. Can, do you think it's possible to have uh, foresight 2020? Well, you know, some some founders, uh, <clears throat> again, I, I don't mean, mean to beat the art uh, analogy to death, but some founders are like great directors. You know, um, Spielberg had a run in the 90s that, you know, was pretty amazing. You know, pick your favorite director or favorite whatever. For a while, they kind of see things that no one else has that's in tune with the culture and the time, et cetera. Um, some founders are great serial founders because they kind of get it right across multiple companies or inside multiple companies. Probably the the two or three best examples inside a company was Steve Jobs returning to Apple and not only revitalizing the, the uh, Mac line, but then doing the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad all within like seven years. Or watching Bezos uh, reinvent uh, Amazon at least four or five times, radically transforming every business he's touched from, you know, retail distribution to um, computing as a utility to now uh, potentially gr the grocery business yeah. um, and the, you know, obviously the Kindle business. Watching people reinvent their corporation is, is a pretty amazing activity. Yeah, that speaking of that reinvention is... Is there a time frame, if you've ever qu tried to quantify a time frame where someone has that success after success after success, is it, uh, you know, a five-year, ten-year? Have you have you known anyone who, look, you know, the guy's been going, he's 95 years old, and it seems like every five years he comes up with something that's uh, remarkable. Is there, is there a time frame of that sort of level of success? Well, you know, it really, um, it's a really interesting question, and I'd back it up and say, it really depends on who's running your company. 
And so I'll contend there are two different types of CEOs, whether it's, a, again, an architectural firm or a technology firm or a mainline, you know, online com manufacturing company or, or, or a contracting firm. Um, there are people who are executors who take the existing business and do the same thing year after year. Not that they're not innovating current processes, they're making materials cheaper, coming up with maybe new extensions about new services. And in a static world, that's just fine. Business increases every year and revenue goes up and whatever. But there are other types of CEOs and leaders of companies that actually when the world is changing around them, adapt and adopt better than most people. And these people are capable of seeing through the fog of war. They're able to say, well, wait a minute, building information management systems, or wait a minute, you know, solar and energy management, or wait a minute, new regulation on energy, that's a real opportunity where others just see, okay, yeah. business as usual. And, and that's where, in fact, these different types of leaders where innovation actually turns into disruption. Because all of a sudden, you know, there's a new mandate for X and, gee, the old line companies just can't survive because they, they are now three or four years behind the new innovators. Or, you know, take your pick. I'm, I'm not an architectural expert, but, you know, what's changed in, in commercial or what's changed in residential? Or, gee, are we still building shopping malls? Oops. You know, <laughs> or, yeah. or, or, gee, in hospital design or, or, or whatever and someone has actually seen this coming, you know, as an architect or, or a contractor or both years before, those are the companies that are going to survive. And I'll contend those take different types of leadership. You said two. So we've got the executors. And, and the, we've got the innovators. And the ex executors. Is there such thing as someone having both? Well, so Or no, have you seen it? No. Well, obviously, if you're an innovator and you can't <clears throat> execute, you're out of business. Right? Everybody has ideas. It's the, it's the notion of being able to chew gum at the same time. So a Amazon did not <laughs> abandon their book uh, business. And, and uh, Apple didn't abandon their Mac business when they moved into the iPod. And in fact, some companies screw it up as they fall in love with the shiny object and, and they mm. lose. In fact, that's what the people who made BlackBerry Rim fell in love with the shiny object of a new operating system when they try to compete with the, with the iPhone and ended up screwing both ends of their business. So, so if you're an innovator, you're smart and you manage to keep control out of your core business. If you're an executor and you're not an innovator, then you better be able to look to your right and your left and find incredibly creative people next to you that have responsibility for P&L process and people. Yeah. That is, if they just have a title without any ownership, you're going to be a short-term company in an industry that's being disrupted. So if you're in a static industry, being an executor is exactly what you want. If you're in an industry where new tech is coming or customers are changing or regulation is changing or something else is changing and your business still looks like it did when grandpa was running it, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I, I sure hope you're harvesting all the profits because you're not going to be in business in another five or ten years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I just look at my students, in the, who some of them are in, in the architectural school, um, you know, there's a whole new set of things coming out almost weekly in, in both tech and in regulation. And, it's overwhelming, and Overwhelming. Yeah. But the real question is not about falling in love with the toys. It's thinking about what's the impact on either customers or segments or um, making your business more efficient or more profitable or more competitive or whatever. 
and and the other part that's affecting almost every other industry, and I bet architecture as well, is for the first time in the 21st century, new venture startups are being funded at a scale never imagined. That is, if you were a car manufacturer entering the 21st century, the notion of a startup raising several billion dollars to put Ford or GM out of business would have been like, one, what drugs did you just take? Because that, but, but that describes Tesla. Um, and in fact, Tesla for a while was spending more on autonomous vehicles and electric platforms than the entire automobile companies worldwide. Now they've kind of woken up and are now chasing Tesla. Um, but the point is, is that there's more R&D dollars in startups disrupting different components of the architecture and contracting business than the existing incumbents have. Yeah. That should be frightening. Yeah. Well, it's, it, that, that brings us to, what do you think of Mindshare as that? You know, it used to be, I, I, it's been a while since I, I, I've read about this, but it was, a, if you, you know, it was, re, it was real estate, if you had to have the real estate or the property. But at this, there was a, I don't have a reference for it, so I'm just, I'm just throwing it out here. My, my recollection is, is it, it was real estate at one time, literally land. Now it's mind share. So it's literally how do you have the product, service, or solution embedded into the mind of a prospective customer? That's the real estate now in the mind of a customer. What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, it, you know, mm. if you're an architectural firm, you know, you now need to understand where your customer's head's at. It's, in fact, you know, I, I kind of imagine being an architect today is somewhat like being a doctor today in that if you're a doctor, your patients are come in armed with having looked at the Internet and knowing more about every possible disease they might Very have. Yeah. And if you're an architect, if your client has now spent a day or two looking at, you know, electrochromatic windows and, you know, G solar arrays and, you know, geothermal systems or new materials, and they're like asking what about X or Y, mm. and you're kind of going, well, let me tell you how we yeah. do business. Yeah. And and so there's an what I call an impedance mismatch between their knowledge base and yours because of what's going on around your business that is completely out of control, plus the amount of information available to a client um, has just exploded dramatically. And so they're they're being kind of educated outside your control, where in the 20th century, you were the information source uh, for them completely. Yeah. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Kickstart is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to lift millions of people in Africa out of poverty quickly, cost-effectively, and sustainably. Co-founded by Stanford alumnus Dr. Martin Fisher, Kickstart designs, promotes, and markets simple money-making tools that smallholder farms buy and use to start profitable family enterprises. You can help families permanently change their lives by contributing to Kickstart. For more information, visit kickstart.org. That's kickstart.org. And now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Steve Blank, serial entrepreneur, 
based in Pescadero, California. For more information, please visit steveblank.com. That's Steve, B-L-A-N-K.com. Steve, you're talking about the analogy between an architect and a a physician and how now the customers or patients are so so much more armed with information about what their condition or conditions may be. But they're not uh, informed by intelligence, and that's the role of the architect. Okay, that's right. if you really think about it, an architect's job is to not only have that same information, but able to put it into context about cost and trade-offs and whatever that allows a, a client to kind of understand this. When I built a house, I had an architect, an owner's rep, and a contractor and whatever, and the role of my architect was to talk me off the ceiling, you know, <laughs> half the time going, yeah. you know, bulletproof windows, yes, so let me explain to you the, the, the problem is, you know, you'll decrease the, the amount of visibility by 25%, but the odd chance that there's a 50 caliber bullet coming at your window, you won't have that problem. I mean, I had my list of crazy things, and, and my architect's job was, oh, was to kind of have that discussion with me about trade-offs about solar and about energy efficiency and about, you know, whether I really needed geothermal in California versus something else. Um, And and it was actually, I I actually got exposed to a great architect who had done this a lot and also had clients who we understood was always wanted cutting edge stuff, but didn't understand the trade-offs of cost, time, materials, et cetera. And at least for me, that was a wonderful job of my architect and then translating that to working with my contractor uh, who, who's, uh, to be honest, whose advanced technology was using nails. Um, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who he admitted, right? I mean, but he was a world-class contractor and they got along well, but they, but there was a little impedance match yeah. between, between them. And in fact, you know, in California, we're an earthquake country. And so, you know, talking about the latest regulations and whatever, until I finally understood what they f- were finally discussing with, with earth- earthquake proofing a house within yeah. a couple of miles of the San Andreas Fault was whether the rubble would fall in a straight pile or, you know, horizontally. Um, so I, I got schooled, I, th- I think, on multiple, multiple dimensions here. Yeah. So the the, the intel, what were we still, are we still in the information age? They call it the information age. So you think there could be an intelligence age? And I don't mean like intelligence isn't smart. It just mean um, more accurate information. About a, a, a potential problem or, or a solution, you think that uh, either can be coming or it can be utilized by the entrepreneurs. Uh, obviously, architects are well entrepreneurs uh, as well. But do you see that? So, taking so place I or? think this is a classic get out of the building and find out. So, if you think about, I love if, it. All if, right. if you think about it, your hypothesis here is that. Architects know something either contractors or their customers, developers, or or individuals might want to know, which are, in this case, for me, it was what are the trade-offs between um, advanced technology, advanced materials, et cetera, time, cost, et cetera. It would be great to have somebody with that kind of intelligence, but the assumption is someone cares, right? That someone really cares to be told that because I'm, I'm sure... Um, and this is my hypothesis, that in at least half the things getting built, it's like, build me the cheapest damn thing I could get in the shortest period of time, and, and then let me know what what those trade-offs are. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the, on high-end projects, it's no, I want to make a statement, and I don't care what 
some of the costs yeah. are. I'll remind you of what your your uh, definition of hypothesis is. Really, you don't know what you're effing doing yet, right? <laughs> right. Well, no, it works. You <laughs> okay. have a belief you do. Okay. And now you so you have you don't come in with I don't know anything. That's not what founders do, and that's not what I think great artists do. Yeah, I think it's important to clarify. Right. That. They yeah. have a vision. So okay. you start with a vision, not like let me go out and do a giant focus group. <laughs> what you really have is I have an opinion. And, 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 and usually if you're starting something or, again, you're an, you're an artist slash architect with a point of view, I have a strong point of view. But, but that's all it is. Because unless you're just building it for yourself and paying it for yourself, you now need to go out and test that and say, will anybody pay for it? Is this a real problem? Is this, you know, if, if it's not the real problem, what is the real problem? Because you immediately, unconsciously, once you have that belief that this is the problem, you immediately unconsciously jump to the solution. That is, this is the problem. It's energy. You know, gee, people would love to save 30% on their building. And therefore, I'm going to put solar and whatever and, you know, low, low whatever emissive windows yeah. and whatever. You might find out that's not the problem at all. The problem might be cost or the problem might be regulation or the problem might be something else that you just don't understand because you went in there with a prefixed belief that this is the problem, therefore it okay. needs the solution. Does, does that make yeah, sense what yeah. I say about yeah. hypothesis? And very quickly, that could put you out of business or get you to spend a lot of money and time doing the wrong thing for a client or a customer or your own business without ever finding out something that just speaking to. So when we do this in class or for companies, we make them speak to 100 customers, partners, regulators, and whatever in 10 weeks. Okay, so 100, 100 perspective? Yes. Customers in 10 I like that. That's a very good or, program. And okay. Customers, so uh, customers, stakeholders, you know, regulators, legal, you know, re- whatever, yeah. depending, yeah. And, and, and 10 a week. Ten a week until you're not getting divergent data, and and okay. usually is that your a, is that your formula? I'm sorry. Is this your formula? Yes. That you've, okay. Yeah. Excellent. So that's how we teach it for uh, not only students, but this was what was adopted by the National Science Foundation to commercialize all science in the U.S. It's called the National Science Foundation Innovation Core, and so this class at Stanford and this methodology ended up being standardized by the NSF, the NIH, DOE, HHS, the National Security Agency, National Geospatial Agency. And then it's how it's taught inside of corporations now as well and inside of government agencies. And so this methodology at least says we're starting with some known base yes. rather than just opinions. Yeah. And for architects and for contractors, this is just a no-brainer yeah. because it's real easy to fall in love with your own stuff, right? This is navel-gazing. And, and if you're an artist, <laughs> it's, it's, really, yeah, yeah. it's really easy to do. Well, I'm smart. And by the way, there's no doubt that all your listeners are the smartest people inside their own building. <laughs> but there's no possibility. There's no okay. possibility that they're smarter than the collective intelligence of their potential customers. Excellent. Excellent. And, and so the yeah. question is, how do you just break that I'm talking to myself and 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 for engineers by the way this is the difficult part not not hard to understand but you mean I need to talk to people I don't like or know or yeah and so this discovery process really is more of a kind of social engineering thing is is when I used to teach scientists for the country best scientists in the U.S. 
you know, the difference between an introvert and an extrovert is whether they were looking at their shoes or your shoes. Um, and so we taught them how to make eye contact in 10 weeks. Um, and, and if you could do that, um, yeah. then, in fact, you've actually affected. Yeah. I mean, it's not that they're all going to then now change and become salespeople, but they actually value then the fact that they're as smart as they are that that's usually not the answer. That's the beginning of the journey, not the end. Yeah, that's very interesting. How, how, what's your uh, uh, your thoughts on this? How much does how much of a component is fear or lack of fear in this process? So, um, so in the startup world, um, if you're sleeping well, you're not doing it hard enough. Um, <laughs> okay. so I didn't sleep well for 21 years in, in eight startups. Um, so, so um, this whole methodology was d- developed because the world I come out of is you have a virtual gun to your head called burn rate, meaning how much money are you spending or burning every month until you run out of money. And you only run out of money when you don't find what's called product market fit, which is the match between what you think you're building and people who want to buy it. So speed and urgency and good enough decision making, not perfect decisions, not Good and not perfect information, but good enough information. Uh, I would trade for anything for speed and urgency, and so this customer development process and lean emerge from this notion of we need to move as fast as possible, and that's different from another out of the building activity which Stanford is expert at called design thinking. Design thinking is another methodology that talks to customers, but literally kind of came from large companies who were making major $100 million decisions where, in fact, perfect information is what was needed. Because if you make a $100 million mistake because you didn't talk to enough people, well, that was equally dumb. And so there are two methodologies. Not one of them is right. It just depends what problem you're trying to solve. If you're trying to optimize speed and urgency, then customer development as part of lean is what you ought to be implementing. But if you're in a large company, you might want to do that, but you also might want to think, well, what if we get it wrong? Then doing design thinking, where there is no limitation on time and amount of information you want to go gather is also the right thing. And and the tactics are actually quite similar. It's just what the outcome is. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, so can you um, go back to, actually I have a couple of um, kind of spiritual connections with this because in some ways I actually think it is because you're using a, a facet of yourself that is an unknown. It's an unknown, so you're taking an unknown and making it not only known, but you're making it uh, ultimately profitable yes. or u- u- useful. How, how do you... Um, is how do you measure that in an individual yeah. if you can? You mean how do I know whether whether they they have it or not? Kind of like the right stuff. He can fly to the moon and back, and he'll make it and he'll do a good job. Whereas you know, there's other people who may seem at least uh, tangibly more qualified. But yeah, that... so I'm, I'm going to now get a little personal. <clears throat> it, it turns out um, that the early days of a startup for a founder, not for an employee, but a founder, is completely chaotic. I mean. There, there is no day-to-day, you show up at 9, you go home at 5. You're, I mean, you know, the, on a good day, you're, you know, the customer you thought you had just said changed their mind. The funding you thought you had just went away. You know, your co-founder just quit. And so, you know, and you got into a car accident. And that was before noon. Um, and so if you're not comfortable with chaos and uncertainty, 
this is not the job for you. And if you're not, and the only reason you'll do this is if you're driven for the passion of creating something that never existed before. Okay. That to me is the definition of a real founder. Now here's the personal part. It turns out that um, an unreasonable number of founding CEOs of not only technology companies, but startups in general who are successful come from dysfunctional families. Uh, really? And the reason oh. why is survivors of dysfunctional families grew up in a world of chaos. And the survivors were the ones who were able to shut down all the external noise and focus only on the things that were necessary for survival. Wow. So this Camelot ch uh, from birth to childhood and on is actually those are not they're not geared for the type of success you're talking about. Uh, uh, again, for whatever I, reason, I, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to say that no one from a you know yeah, high a privileged, I guess, right, yeah. or high functioning household yeah. can't make it. <laughs> it's just that the cruelest and most effective training ground in the world is either uh, being a platoon leader in uh, Fallujah in in Iraq. Or, or surviving combat, yeah. combat and being good at it, um, or surviving a dysfunctional family. And I only mean it because, again, what you what you need to survive as a founder is the ability to shut down all external things except for survival and be able to pick your way through truly a fog of battle and keep your eye on the prize yeah. and, and, and make choices that are judicious, but but you're making them constantly. You don't have time to stop and ask for advice and look look for. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, absolutely. And, and again, I, it, it, it yeah. is a stereotype. But when I retired, I uh, I started surveying my students until I realized I was running an illegal experiment at Stanford. <laughs> um, uh, but I got I got enough data to convince me that yeah. there was. There was a disproportionate number, and then I tried it with a woman who was my one of my mentors as a venture capitalist, Catherine Gould. I said, Catherine, did you notice, you know, blah, blah, blah? And she said, Steve, why do you think we invested in you? And oh, then, oh, my. And she said, okay. well, of course, it's a known pattern with yeah. VCs. Yeah. Um, he said, you guys have a lot to prove, and you'll go through walls to do so. Yeah, I uh, love that. So it's, anyway, so it was a... The, yeah, yeah, that was a great explanation. Yeah. One of the best I've ever heard. It. Uh, it, 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 you mentioned something funny about the illegals, uh, like uh, Uber, which you were involved in. Okay. Is it, it, illegal, it actually was... Explain a little bit how like, it was... It's not illegal to have done it, but initially... Yes, it is. It is. Okay, so, so, explain so, that a bit. So think about it... Uh, Startups have an advantage that people just hadn't articulated about um, against large companies. In a large company, you can only do what's legal, particularly if you're a public company, right? If you, yeah, say, yeah. If you say, well, let's do something illegal, you know, your counsel's <laughs> going to say, well, you know, let me tell you why we're all going to jail or why we're going to have the world's largest shareholder lawsuit or why don't I just give you the name of the state attorney general because you're going to get to know him pretty well. Um, but a startup has nothing to lose. Not only do they have nothing to lose, is that they figure if they could disrupt an entire industry that's either over-regulated or, or are rent-seekers, meaning have kind of owned that industry through regulation or, or some other way, they could create a billion-dollar new market by doing something that's on the books illegal. Not just Uber, Airbnb, yeah. you know, it, Tesla, name them PayPal, all. Yeah. Um, all of them broke local or national or state laws to kind of build a business that provided better services or products to customers because the incumbents actually had uh, put in place a regulatory regime that actually entrenched non-innovation. 
So, in entrenched a, non-intervention, invention, innovation. So Whoa. it turns out that sounds uh, regu- hurtful. Regulation and rent sinking at times is uh, strangles innovation in its crib. In, and in fact, in companies where in countries where corruption is endemic, there's almost a direct negative correlation between innovation and corruption, um, because you know the, the the status quo is what you pay for, but innovation is anti-status quo. Oh, so so at what point do they become accepted if there is such a thing? Where it whereas uh, say for example example like Yellow Cab, they could have done what Uber. Did or they couldn't have by your, uh, by your assessment. So in they some couldn't in, have. so in some industries they figure out how to innovate, and others, you know, look at blockbuster, and you know, look at the, uh-huh. um, uh, industries that have gone out of business, and some uh, industries manage to stifle innovation, but uh, over time to their own detriment. Look what the music business did to Napster in the beginning yeah, of the yeah. they managed to crush innovation and then 15 20 years later their businesses models changing whether they wanted to or not yeah you're listening to the modern architect kzsu 90.1 fm stanford free speech tv is a national independent news network committed to advancing progressive social change reaching more than 40 million households in the united states Free Speech TV inspires viewers to become civically engaged in building a more just, equitable, and sustainable society. You can get involved by joining an online community, subscribing to the e-guide or RSS feeds, or sharing videos, and, of course, making a donation. For more information, visit freespeech.org. That's freespeech.org. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Steve Blank, a serial entrepreneur based in Pescadero, California. For more information, please visit steveblank.com, steve, B-L-A-N-K.com. Steve, uh, how is entrepreneurship um, highly relevant to architects? Obviously, that's why I brought you on, because I knew it would be, and I think our listeners would appreciate it. How do you see it, you know, from, from your experiences and from our discussions before we, uh, uh, we went on air, or on air, and, uh, you know, now even discussing so, how do you see the connection? So, again, being a non-architect, maybe I just have the wrong view of what the profession is, but I've always, at least the ones I've dealt with, thought of them as artists. Um, and that they see things and create things that just didn't exist before. And I'm sure there's some part of architecture that's just a job, um, you know, where you're doing someone else's drawings or, or, or building someone else's thing. Mm-hmm. But, but because at least some part of architecture sees things and that that just haven't existed before now the interesting thing is can you find clients and and (laughs) business for it or can you integrate in new changes that are constantly happening in technology either to help you create like building information management systems or virtual you know walkthroughs and or new materials and how do you use carbon fiber or how do you use new pieces of glass or structural materials etc and so a good part of, I think, an architect's job is getting outside the building, not just physically, but virtually trying to keep up with the changes that are going on. Also, the changes in how spaces are being used. Um, you know, while people still have houses and we have industrial buildings and, and commercial buildings, 
you know, the size, the spaces, the taste, the whatever. And the question is whether you're a late follower, a fast follower, or, or a creator, mm-hmm. or, or somebody who actually understands these changes. I mean, for me in, the, in, in my business, uh, watching the size and the scale of WeWork, these communal spaces on, on the commercial side, was just an amazing um, explosion because it, it not only affected how you built out the space, it was actually driven by socialization changes that people would rather not be sitting separated in cubes, but rather be communally working together. Um, or yeah. watching the changes in how hospitals uh, built rooms for patients, um, you know, uh, or watching how the size of, of residences changed in just in my lifetime from small to large to what spaces and rooms were important versus weren't important. I, I think architects acting as um, uh, kind of the bow shock of innovation, of getting out of the building and understanding and integrating these changes, and then helping educate their clients understand uh, what they are. Uh, again, regulation and technology on, on energy uses is also dramatically impacted and yes. will continue to impact um, building and design for architects. Um, so, so I think of architects as kind of continually learning and continually discovering um, uh, things about customers and technology in a way that, if I guess if I were one, I would think it would be one of the most <laughs> exciting jobs in the world. Yeah. Um, if, in fact, you love learning. Like and, a calling, as you said. And, and by Especially the way, if this, it is a calling. This is one of, the, one of the unheralded things about an entrepreneur. I mean, we talk about agility and resilience and tenacity and speed is curiosity. Um, and, and to me, an architect... You know, is is always curious, right? About well, what else is somebody doing? And look, look at this design. What materials did they use? How did they, you know, how they get this <laughs> under budget? And oh, they did it. Oh, well, the, <laughs> yeah, gee, they're going out of business because of that building or, or whatever. But yeah. but learning from all these things, I I I think if if you have that, then. You're not just an architect or an artist. You're actually an entrepreneur. Excellent. Well put. And and I, and I like that uh, the 10 uh, speak to 10 uh, or, excuse me, 100, uh, 100 people outside of yourself in, in, for 10 weeks. I think that I think some of that, what you're just saying, is applicable to this. I think so, too. Yeah. And, and, again, there's no magic in 100, though that starts getting information density. Because what you're trying to test is you're not only your hypothesis of do you like my product or services – but, gee, did I talk to the regulators? Did I talk to the contractors? Did, did I talk to – can I source the material? Do I understand, you yeah. know, is this thing buildable? Have I talked to other people who have used it before or whatever? Um, so you're trying to build up do I have sufficient data to to believe that this is not a hypothesis. Yeah. It's a fact. Yeah. Uh, now, by the way, one of the interesting things that happened when we came up with this methodology is when the National Science Foundation called us, um, the way they described what we had accidentally created is they said – You've just invented the scientific method for entrepreneurship. No way. Yeah. And, Are you kidding? And, and That's so, outstanding. Well, it was outstanding because it came from the National Science Foundation. Yeah, I know. Who should know of all what people. scientific. Yeah. So yeah. if you really think about it, hypothesis testing is something we've done for 500 years. So basically, we articulate a hypothesis. We design an experiment. We you know, run the experiment. We get some data. Uh, we derive some insight. And we either modify our hypotheses, invalidated or validated, oh. and then go on and continue to do that. I love it. I love it. Steve, are there any suggestions that you'd have for uh, aspiring uh, architects starting their own business, their own practice, entrepreneurs, investors? What what, what type of uh, um, personal 
recommendations or suggestions would you have them take a look at if, if this is something that's of interest to them? You know, to, and again, this might just be my naivety about the business is that, you know, is this a calling or is this a job? Uh, and, and those are very different things, even though... That's not com- that's not a common thing, that uh, at least as a parent, that you ask. Well, for, or as any a teacher. For, right? for a calling, you're not there for the salary, right? You're, you're there to make a dent in the universe. I love it, a dent you know, in the universe. That was Steve or an Jobs. expansion of it. But that was Steve yeah. Jobs' yeah. line about, you know, or a job is, there's a job spec, and you... You know, and your business card is a shorthand to a one or two page job spec. And you work within those bounds and that's what you go to work for. And, you know, and then when you go home, then you live your rest of your life. Yeah. But if it's a calling, then your life is kind of not that spec, but what you're doing because you're doing it because you can't imagine doing anything else. Um, Aha. That may be it. And and that's what Silicon Valley is, is. It's a whole world full of people, at least a good chunk of them, who can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll sp- switch from uh, people to cats, and here's a, a line that uh, you and I have exchanges. Um, by Mark Twain, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. This is, of course, by Mark Twain. What, 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 uh, what prompted you to, to, to bring that up? And, and, uh, well, um, you know, one of the books I wrote was called Holding a Cat by Its Tail. <laughs> okay. And, All right. And that kind of describes the entrepreneurial world is that, um, y- y- you know, it's um, you you could describe it until you're blue in the face. But until you've <laughs> until you've actually experienced it, um, it it's kind of like uh, reading about sex when you're a teen and then having sex. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a difference between theory and practice. Okay. And so theory about entrepreneurship, it's great. That's exciting and whatever. But um, <laughs> practicing it is something very different. So, you yeah. know, holding a cat by its tail is like yeah. experiencing the notion of trying to trying to make something happen, which yeah. sounded pretty easy. Oh, it has a tail. It's a little <laughs> handle. I'll just pick it up and move it. From. <laughs> but what, what, what happens when you do that is... Well, you discover how chaotic <laughs> it is, and and you discover all the things that people have been trying to tell you, and you're now figuring out whether you're mentally and emotionally equipped to do it. Um, and I think, I thought, and still think it was the most exciting thing that people could actually pay you to go do. Awesome. Steve, it's been a great having you as our guest. Thank you. We've been truly honored. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Steve Blank, a Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur and academician based in Pescadero, California. Steve's also recognized for developing the customer development method that launched the Lean Startup Movement, a methodology which recognized that startups are not small versions of large companies, but require their own set of processes and tools to be successful. For more information, visit steveblank.com. That's steveblank.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. The recording engineer is production... The recording engineer and production manager is Akshay Juggy. Assistant engineer is McGregor Joyner. 
and were all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. Please tune in again next week for another episode of The Modern Architect. Thank you. Support for KZSU comes from Modeler.com, a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com works with architects from architecture and design firms to discover, discuss, and specify products for their building projects. We at KZSU thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect.